from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here today in Hollywood, California. On this week's edition, Procter & Gamble's quest for zero waste, deep green in the time of Trump, and reducing waste on the X-Files. It's lights, camera, eco-action, this week on 350. It's January 20th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350, episode 60. I'm Joel McCower. With me, as always, is Green Biz senior writer, Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Hello. Welcome to the Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah. I think we have to acknowledge right off the bat that, oh, yeah, today's Inauguration Day. A new era is taking shape, um, and we are entering into, if not the Twilight Zone, which is appropriate given that I'm here at Fox Studios, uh, at least the unknown. Mm-hmm, definitely. I think there will be lots of time to to deconstruct and follow appointments and all of that. But uh, I have to say a little bit surreal that we're actually, we've arrived at the day. We have. And uh, I'll talk a little bit in a few minutes more about uh, some of the thinking of sustainability executives, uh, how they view this new uh, era. Um, and um, But uh, meanwhile, did I mention I'm here in Hollywood? Yeah. What? So you were in San Diego last week. So now in, in Hollywood, what's going on there? Well, this is another, uh, the second of three this month uh, meetings of the Green Business Executive Network. This is where we bring together about 25 uh, sustainability execs from uh, large companies for a day and a half. And we uh, talk a lot about what's going on and share stories and uh, exchange uh uh, thoughts on a number of different topics and basically learn from one another. And uh, each meeting is hosted last week. You may recall I was at Stone Brewery in San Diego, which was uh, the host of, of that meeting. And um, this week we're at uh, 21st Century Fox, the iconic studio uh, right here in actually Beverly Hills, uh, Hollywood, sort of right right in this area. It sounds better to say Hollywood, I guess. Yeah, this is this iconic studio. It goes back to, I think, the 1930s or so as we tour the lot. Uh, the other, yesterday we could see uh, where Shirley Temple lived. This is back when they had um, these uh, huts where actors were owned by the studios, in effect, and they lived on the set, and they were, you know, part and parcel of everything that happened in the studios, and that whole uh, system that, that later went away. Uh, but we also saw where where they're filming uh, the, the next generation of TV shows and spend some time looking at virtual reality and how some of those technologies are going to be affecting things. That's fascinating stuff, particularly virtual reality, looking at the movie sets. What's sort of the nexus with sustainability? Are there particular issues that are top of mind for them? Well, there's a couple. I mean, first of all, you know, energy and climate. In fact, uh, Fox has been ahead of the curve for uh, about 10 years. I think that it was almost exactly 10 years ago that that uh, one of the episodes of 24 became the first TV show ever to be carbon neutral. And this is, you know, with car crashes and all kinds of things. And that's and, and that and a number of other series continued to be uh, carbon neutral by Fox's uh, reckoning, at least. And um and and the, they've really been at the forefront. Although most of the studios are doing some pretty good stuff, uh, Disney and Sony and Universal all seem to have uh, you know really good projects uh, where they are um, looking at energy and climate. 
Uh, one of the things that interests me is sort of the waste piece. It's kind of old school, and it goes way back to 20 years. And if you look at production of TV shows and movies, they're very wasteful in terms of the materials that they use for just a moment, just a day. So I sat down with Vijay Sudan, who's the vice president of social impact for 21st Century Fox and a member of our executive network, and uh, talked about what's going on with waste and the circular economy in the TV and movie industry. And we'll play that segment a little bit later after we look at the Week in Review. So as we alluded to, busy week. Not only do we have the presidential transition happening in Washington, also the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, But on the former front, we had an interesting piece this week by Gregory Staple, who's the CEO of the American Clean Skies Foundation, titled California's Grid Geeks, Deep Green in the Time of Trump. And so it really drills down into sort of the details of of how California is working towards greening its energy supply, um, lots of ambitious state goals that they're working towards that are even um, ahead of of what the feds are working on in Washington. Um, It seems like this is especially going to be an area to watch. I know Scott Pruitt, um, Donald Trump's nominee for the head of the EPA, uh, signaled this week that he he isn't so sure that states like California should be able to set um, their own increasingly ambitious standards for things like transportation emissions. So the state federal line is something that's going to be really fascinating to watch in the coming months. Yeah, it's really interesting, this California thing, because the state, which is, of course, deep blue, and in, in, there is not a single Republican uh, statewide office holder, um, is digging in deep on sustainability, on climate. Uh, the governor and the, and everybody else is sort of saying, you know, we are not going to have this rolled back. In fact, we are going to continue our, uh, to expand our already ambitious goals around renewable energy, around carbon reduction, around transportation, uh, around uh, urban density, around some uh, appliance efficiency, so many other things. It used to be that as goes California, so goes the nation in things like uh, fuel economy for cars and some other things because, you know, we here are the, well, the sixth biggest economy in the world, certainly the biggest economy within the United States. But that's not all up for grabs now. And and Greg Staples' piece sort of looks at – it's actually the first of a six-part piece of, uh, of what's going to happen here and, and how is this going to play out um, because this is uh, – Really important, not just from an environmental perspective, but from an economic perspective. And as the the Trump team now takes the reins, you know, will they be letting states do their thing, or will they only be letting states do their thing if that thing is something they agree with? That's one of many, many, many really interesting stories we're going to be seeing play out over the next uh, few months and presumably years. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, while we're on the topic, Joel, how big of a factor has the inauguration been in the last couple of GBEN meetings where you've been in the same room with lots of corporate sustainability execs? So the GBEN, Green Business Executive Network, as we've had this series of meetings in January, and as I said, we've had two of the three, the third one is next week, uh, as we go around the room and, and introduce ourselves, because it's always a slightly different group every meeting, um, 25 or so companies in the room, we've asked each of them to talk about what, if anything, is going to be changing uh, for your company in its 
in, in terms of its sustainability plans because of the U.S. presidential and congressional elections? And the short answer is not much at all. Uh, and that they are continuing down the course. And when you think about it, when they explain why, uh, you, you quickly understand, uh, you know, three reasons why this is just, you know, going to continue. One is that most of these companies are making plans that go well beyond uh, four years. They're five or 10 years or 20 years in some cases. Many of them have 2030 or even 2050 commitments, 2030 certainly. Um, and so number two is that so many of these companies, and these are all billion-dollar-plus revenue companies, half or sometimes more than half of their business is outside the U.S. These are global companies, and they are not uh, necessarily just looking at the U.S. market, uh, although Americans would like to think that they are American companies and caring only about America, and they, they care about a lot of countries, and certainly their home country as, as much or more than others. But their markets are all over the place, so they're looking globally. And And the third reason is that they recognize that something we've been talking about forever, that this is just good business around efficiency, around risk reduction, around reputation, around so many other things, and that this is not subject to the whims of the regulatory or political environment. So what's just interesting is, is I mean, there's a little bit of, of, of variation that the, the people in the room who are around their own, whose jobs center on their own operational efficiency, their own, you know, the greening of the company, if you will, that hasn't changed. In fact, some of them saying we're doubling down on their purchases of renewables and other things. If their jobs have a little bit to do with the market facing, in other words, helping their salespeople respond to RFPs or engaging uh, their uh, the customer base around the sustainability attributes of their products, there's a little bit more uncertainty, but not a lot. And by the way, the other thing that we did is we reached out, uh, John Davies, our colleague, uh, our vice president and senior analyst, uh, reached out to a polling body that we have called the Green Biz Intelligence Panel, which is, I think, five or 6,000 professionals uh, around the world, but primarily North America and primarily large companies, which is to say, again, a billion dollars of revenue plus, and asked them the same question via uh, an online survey. And similarly, the, res the results are stay the course. This is something that isn't going to change much, if at all. And in some cases, we're actually going to be doing more. And to the extent they saw that there were impacts, there were mostly negative impacts around, you know, taking away the clean power plan, uh, things like that. Not that they were licking their chops that, oh boy, we get to pollute more or get to, you know, ease up on the, on the, on the gas pedal on some of these initiatives. They're not doing that at all. Mm -hmm. Given that you just brought up the clean power plan, I'm reminded a little bit of a conversation that I think really started back around the Paris climate talks. And that's a, uh, this question of how how much of a responsibility or how much interest companies have in parlaying the work they're doing internally into public policy change. Um, I know under the Obama administration, there were multiple sort of White House letters or more policy lobbying type efforts that were going on. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, if some of those have legs into the next administration, if there are new things that start to take shape, or if we're really looking at sort of parallel tracks where you've got things that are continuing in the corporate sector and potentially at the state level, like in California, we were just talking about, um, or if there is potentially a way to sort of find some some middle ground on some of these issues. Well, I think it's both and that we're seeing 
Some numbers of companies step up. We ran a piece uh, the other day this week uh, by Mindy Luber, the president of Ceres, and Keith Tuffley, the managing partner, CEO of the B Team, both organizations with with big corporate leadership companies and, and in the case of Ceres, also large institutional investors uh, that are supporting this work of climate action and so many other things that we talk about, um, urging the new administration, the new Congress to stay the course and not to roll things back. And so it's going to be uh, a race around or certainly an interesting story about how effective biz- the business voice can be in this allegedly uh, you know, market-centric administration in terms of holding back some of the the potential rollbacks of, of, of things, but also at the same time uh, – that this is becoming very much a bottom-up issue. There's a great piece in Grist this week, um, something about uh, the title that I don't have in front of me, but it's something about uh, you know all climate action is local. Uh, to uh, play on the old Tip O'Neill, all politics is local, um, and and I think that's really true in that so much of this is going to be happening not just at the state level and certainly not just California, but at the city level. We saw mayors gathering this week in Washington for in the run-up to the inauguration, coming together and stating uh, their um, commitment to climate action and not just big cities and not just on the coasts, but mayors of, of cities across the country. So this bottom-up piece is going to be really interesting. And the, the, the question uh, as we often see in in politics, is and we saw this with everything from uh, civil rights to the Tea Party. Is you know, is there a national movement that starts at the grassroots and eventually do, do our national leaders see a parade forming and have a strong desire to get in front of it? And sort of on the other end of the spectrum, you mentioned the the piece we ran this week focused on Davos, calling corporate leaders at Davos. I think it's interesting there. A lot of the focus seems to be on how bankers, regulators, and executives are are responding to this evolving conversation around um, financial resolutions and sort of setting standards for your portfolios that, that, again, has long been part of the lexicon of impact investing and things like that. Um, But whether we're going to see more mainstream stock exchanges or regulatory agencies starting to require companies, um, and again, this could get to sort of the global piece you're mentioning, Joel, even if uh, regulators in the U.S. aren't forcing the issue on things like stranded assets, uh, there are certainly banks in Scandinavia and elsewhere that have signaled that they are very interested in that sort of financial information. Um, So I think it's interesting, like you're saying, there's like these high-low conversations, there's the grassroots climate action that that we've seen in in North Dakota and other places bubbling up, and then what's happening in Davos and among sort of the financial powers that be. And we'll, uh, just to give a little preview, on January 31st, we'll be releasing our 10th annual State of Green Business Report, a webinar webcast that we'll be hosting that day, and we'll link to it from this page, and you'll be getting, uh, seeing plenty more on that uh, on Green Biz. But one of the things that We'll be measuring for the first time is the number of stock exchanges, to your point, Lauren, uh, that now have some kind of environmental disclosure uh, requirement to be listed. And that's growing impressively around the world. And, uh, you know, that's, I'm not sure that's top down or bottom up. It's sort of middle out kind of thing because it's not being run by governments. In most cases, this is being run by markets. But this is yet another factor here. And so which one of these is going to win out is going to be the great, fascinating and probably at times infuriating stories of the of the new Trump era. 
We also had a really interesting piece this week on a topic that I can't say I I know a whole lot about, uh, which was done by our senior writer, Heather Clancy. The piece was part of our Green Biz 101 series and called Get Ready for Virtual Power Plants. And Heather is here right now to tell us what the heck that means. How's it going, Heather? (laughs) Hi. Uh, It's going great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So you want me to try to define it, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I have to say it was a very intriguing headline. So I... See, this is a great, in my mind, it's it's part part marketing and part evolution, right? So realistically, virtual power plants are the next generation of something we've been talking about for some time, distributed energy, right? We've been talking about the distributed grid, the fact that as as uh, renewables like solar and wind and, and even energy storage, right, so ba- big batteries get added to the power infrastructure, that the the concept of a power plant is is really breaking down. Like you're, you probably people still think of these big coal plants or nuclear plants or, you know, hydro or something. You think of these big facilities where there's enormous um, amounts of power being generated. The idea of a virtual power plant takes very, several concepts we've been talking about for a while. So smart grids and again, distributed energy, like the, these, these pockets of, um, in fact, like many of the corporate deals that we talk about that are adding that are adding electricity to a grid in some area, the local grid, grid in, in, in any case. But but the idea is that you'll be able to manage them. That's a big difference. So instead of um, having a centrally organized managed power facility or, or or draw a pool of power you can draw, on, it's coming from many different places. So that it's really you know as I said, it is part marketing because it's it's really a clever way of of making this more real. For people, I think when you say that to someone who's not a, an energy wonk, they understand, hey, okay, so this power plant isn't necessarily in this big place. It could be anywhere. The electricity is coming from anywhere. And so you mentioned that this is sort of, uh, in some ways, a long time coming, a natural evolution of, of trends we've been seeing. What about some of the, the, I guess, more emerging technologies that you cover a lot, like Internet right. of Things, data analytics? I would assume there's some potential interplay there also. Yeah. So there's a couple of, in my mind, a couple of really important things for this. Number one is um, the the technology to help automate how the electricity is added and how it's, how it's seen, right? So what's been generated, where is it, how, how, how a manager can, can view what's going on to the grid at any given moment. So that relies heavily on software. So, and, and, and more so on smart software. So if you get into, you want to be able to ban, manage loads, um, automatically, you don't want to have things manually balanced. You want humans to be able to look at things and make decisions about them, but increasingly, the idea of adding things and, and having them go where they need to go has to be an automated process. So a lot of the artificial intelligence software that we talk about um, is is important here. The other thing you really need is is a way of of accounting for the electricity is being used and who's who's quote selling it and you know putting out there and who's using it. So taking it back in. And that will, that, that the things that are um, going to be instrumental there are like, for example, the blockchain um, technology that we've been writing about that will help make these transactions um, more real. It will help because it's not centrally managed. Um, just like what we're talking about here, it, it enables the transactions to, to kind of flow around uh, and, and generate and, and, and originate in where, whatever place that they need to originate. So those are two things that are really important. 
the internet of things, um, you know, I, I can't stress enough. We, again, when I say we've been talking about this for a while, sensors on, on the power grid are not really a new thing. However, the, uh, software to help it communicate the wireless connectivity, um, to, to really make it sort of a mainstream part of, of a network is there now and, and becoming much more ubiquitous. So those are the things that are coming to place. Not concepts you've never heard of, but things that are coming together to make a very powerful um, opportunity and message. Yeah, that's fascinating. And are there actual pilot projects or full-scale commercial projects, residential projects, where these practices are actually being deployed? Yeah, so if you look at um, some of the players, like you've heard of STEM, um, a big company in the energy storage space, Um, they are working um, in California. They're, They're actually basically offering an opportunity and service to businesses to help them uh, draw on um, the, the, the power that's being created by those in their area. For example, the internet, <laughs> for example, the intercontinental hotel chain and whole foods, they're both uh, using this energy storage in their building and they're able to, to uh, put the power back onto the grid and, and make sort of a, you know, hedge their bets, if you will, and make it more of a, of a commodity that they can help trade and sell. Um, and they also are able to, you know, get, get access in areas where there might not be necessarily the ability to build a power plant. Right. So in certain places you just don't have the geographic capability or even, or maybe the, um, air quality concerns. So to, to answer your question more directly, yes, there's some things going on in California. Um, and a number of the energy storage technology companies are playing a role there. There is a really cool project in um, in Brooklyn, and in in there it's being run by Con Edison, but also SunPower is involved, and a company called Sunverge is involved, and they're all coming together to create like sort of a neighborhood of power generation resources. And if you put solar on your roof, you can. It, it sounds very much like the you know the the net metering thing. You're putting it back onto the grid. And the neighborhood, others in the neighborhood can call on it um, for excess capacity during during peak usage. So, you know, if, if, as this this neighborhood generates power, other places in the area might be able to go in, if they want to pay a little more. Might be able to draw on it if it's peak, or these houses might be able to lay off and um, get a lower rate as, as a result. So, there's lots of little pockets. Um, California, New York, uh, Australia. I think Sunverge is is, a, is involved with what's being built as the biggest one of these, um, and the federal government's involved there too. So lots of pilots going on um, and smaller projects, which is you know people might think, oh gosh, it's going to take a long time. But I I really do think that's the, the nature of this beast anyway. It's that you're we're talking about distributed local things happening and the ability to not have a central authority. Um, regulations will be crucial, right? So making sure the regulations are in place to allow this will be important, but it's definitely uh, starting to become more real. Yeah. And why am I not surprised that Brooklyn is right in the middle of all of this? Uh, (laughs) Well, New York has some pretty progressive policies. I mean, that is definitely a key part of it. And the Mm -hmm. state has made California. So State level support is super important, and uh, and and I would actually look at states where there's a good um, support for energy storage or microgrids. So Connecticut would be another uh, place, Massachusetts, and so forth. So I would look at those states for for opportunities and and also projects that that businesses might be able to tap into. 
All right. Senior writer Heather Clancy, thanks so much for the explainer. Thank you. As we said earlier in this episode, I'm here at 21st Century Fox in Beverly Hills, Hollywood, California, and had a sit down with Vijay Sudan, the vice president of social impact, uh, to talk about waste reduction in movie making and TV uh, show making. And let's listen to that conversation. So I'm joined now by Vijay Sudan, who's the vice president social impact for 21st Century Fox. Uh, First of all, Vijay, thanks so much for hosting here. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us here on our lot in Los Angeles. It's always so much fun being here. You're filming uh, 24 and uh, Homeland is part of, uh, of a different location, but there's so much going on at the studio here. Modern Family is produced uh, not too many feet from here. Uh, looking at this through the lens of environmental sustainability, you got to think about the amount of materials and waste that goes into this. And I know that you've done a lot with with carbon and energy, and you've been carbon neutral on some shows, and really there's a lot of leadership there for almost a decade. But what about the waste piece? That seems like it's an eternal problem for uh, TV and film production. Yeah, I mean, I always say, and I don't know if I should say this, but I always say that film and TV production is an inherently wasteful process. If you think about what it takes to... Uh, create a production. We're basically building a city in, you know, in the streets of Atlanta or in the Moroccan desert or in the Louisiana Bayou, shipping in all the material, building a city, using it for maybe just a week, maybe up to three months, and then tearing it down and throwing it all away. And historically, you know, that that process has involved bringing in virgin materials and literally landfilling it at the end. And so that's really been a focus of ours, you know, as we have have moved forward from looking at our energy and carbon issues, but really understanding what goes into making a production and what the environmental impacts are, are really looking at that material chain. So looking at better sourcing of uh, especially lumber, which is a sort of a major ingredient, obviously, into set construction, uh, and then end of life, looking at a lot of waste issues and, the you know, how we responsibly dispose of those materials or ideally recycle and reuse them. Now, these aren't new issues. I, mean, I remember writing about some of this in the early 90s, mid-90s, um, and, and and partly because the uh, film industry has been thinking about this stuff and looking at they created some production manuals. Has this been a sort of a, a continuous improvement over the last 20-some years, or does it go in waves depending on on the economy or, or ownership of studios or things like that? You you've, haven't been around for all that time, but what have you experienced? There's a baseline of work that has continued steadily across all those years. I mean, as you know, anything else broadly in corporate sustainability or in companies, even at a higher level, there are ebbs and flows. But that baseline of work, as you said, has been going on for decades. Um, it was, I think, almost 10 years ago that also the major studios in Hollywood came together and said, hey, we're all doing this work on our own, putting together best practices um, and really starting to talk to vendors and things we can be so much more powerful as an industry if we work together. And so the green production guide, which you were referring to, was created, which is sort of open source available online. Anybody from a big studio to a film student, you know, doing a little local production can access that and see, you know, what are best practices, what are local green vendors that they can use. So that behind the scenes work of really um, 
setting up baseline of environmental responsibility and production has continued steadily, I think, across the industry. You know, we won't take more credit than uh, our friends and peers at other studios have on that. One of the things I think most people will be surprised about is that there's a certain kind of lumber that you use for sets. It's called Luan. It's a tropical uh, lumber that's, uh, I think, is, is been problematic in the sense that it's, first of all, from tropical forests, and second of all, that it, it's been so hard to replace. Uh, I'm just curious, what efforts are being made to try and find a solution or a replacement for Luan? Yeah, so Luan or Maranti or there's all kinds of different names for it, which is also part of the problem. Even as we're having these conversations with vendors, they say, I don't know what Luan is. And you change the term and all of a sudden they're like, oh, yes, of course. Um, but you're right. The whole industry, film and TV production, uses a particular type of hardwood that's largely sourced from from Southeast Asia and, and from Indonesia. Um, and that presents a lot of problems that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. So we, again, as an industry, because singularly we're not necessarily large enough for uh, the mills and, and forests to take notice, but as an industry have continued to say we want responsibly sourced lumber. Um, and actually our production of the X-Files last year, uh, sorry, our production of 24 last year in London was the first TV production, we believe, to use 100% FSC certified lumber. And we continued that with the X-Files production in Vancouver. Um, and, you know, part of that was just it came to the time where that supply was now available. That was the real issue. There wasn't enough supply of FSC certified Luan in, in the chain and at the mm -hmm. vendors and mills that we were using. Um, but as the demand has increased and they've been working on creating that supply, it's now much easier to source 100% uh, FSC or otherwise sustainably sourced lumber. Um, in addition, we are looking at some alternatives. Um, we haven't found anything at scale that, that can really replace it, but in certain instances we are using you know entirely different materials or, or different sources of, of wood. What about at the sort of the, what you call the end of life? Now, first of all, in the circular economy, which a lot of companies are starting to look at, there is no end of life. There's just end of need, end of want, um, and and so a lot of what you do on a have on a set are tables and chairs, and uh, I don't know some of them may or may not be real. The appliances may not be real, uh, but there are things that can be used, or even supplies. I'm sure that you buy just in case that don't end up being used. Are those? Are you finding uh, beneficial uses or reuses for some of that donation or other kinds of things? And and also, does this term the circular economy even is that even possible in in uh, movie and TV production? I mean, I th I don't think anybody is using that phrase, but that idea has been around for decades. Uh, at the at the end of the day, a lot of those departments, uh, wardrobe and costuming and art, have very small budgets, even in the sense of a, of a very large, big budget movie. And so there's always been reuse of materials, whether that's set pieces, wardrobe, you know, our wardrobe department here on the lot is massive. And you walk in there, I was telling somebody just recently, you walk in there and there's a whole rack of FBI jackets, you know, the dark Navy jackets with the yellow FBI lettering. A lot of those came from the X-Files movie. We're not holding on to them as memento pieces from the film. We're holding on to them because anytime we shoot another uh, show or movie, um, you know, we had a, a military-themed show a, a few years back reusing those same jackets. We have whole rows of scrubs, a lot that are from the Doogie Howser show from the 80s. Uh, so that kind of reuse has always been there. And, of course, donation at the end. There's a great story that our head of sustainability here in the lot told me that when uh, the TV show House finished production after, I think, you know, seven seasons – 
all those sets over the years, we had accumulated hundreds of doors, literally hundreds of doors. And as they were dismantling sets and, and taking things out, she saw the crew just about to trash all of those doors. And she said, hang on a second. Those are real wooden house doors. We can reuse those. And a lot of those went on to be donated to uh, Habitat for Humanity. So, you know, again, this has existed for a long time. If, if we can't use it ourselves on another production, which that happens sometimes, we'll try and donate it to you know, a, a, an outside, another studio or a local community theater or something like that, or we'll try and dismantle and use sort of the raw materials. And then larger set pieces like obviously, you know, furniture and clothing and those sorts of things. Again, we'll hold on to them. We'll donate them. Often we buy them from, you know, a Goodwill type store, secondhand store to begin with. So that saves us a little money and then we'll send it right back to them. Um, you know, as I said at the beginning, this is in a lot of ways an inherently wasteful process because you need a product just for that day or that week to film on and then you're done with it and then what happens and we can't possibly be buying all virgin and just disposing of it at the end i know there's a great story about waste reduction of the x-files yeah so we filmed uh the x-files event series bringing back that show after uh many years off the air we filmed it in vancouver uh last year in 2016 and really our focus on that production in addition to the sort of standard things that we do on every show was really looking at waste um, so again, we, we sourced 100% uh, FSC certified lumber. But a big issue broadly, again, in film and television is a lot of the things that you see on screen, like a facade of a building or, you know, a lamppost or anything is often not real. It's painted styrofoam. Um, and I'm sure your listeners can sort of follow that path down of, oh boy, we have a lot of styrofoam in this supply chain. What do we do with that? And that has also been an issue. What do we do at end of life with all that foam? That foam is glued, it's painted, so it's not even clean foam. Uh, it really becomes a challenge. And so on the X-Files, what we did, thankfully, we were filming in Vancouver, which is a pretty green city and also a lot of filming happens there. So there's a lot of infrastructure uh, in place and a lot of great vendors. But we ended up finding a vendor that was able to take back uh, foam. So if you saw the X-Files, and if you haven't, please go out and purchase it for download and, and watch the season. Um, but in, the, in an early episode, there's a giant black metal spaceship that crashes into the ground. Um, the actual crash was CGI, was computer generated, but there was a real, you know, life-size, larger-than-human-size spaceship on set. That entire piece was made out of carved, glued, and painted styrofoam. And we had to figure out what to do at the end of it with that and, and many others. And so we found a vendor that was able to take back clean foam. Obviously, that's the easy piece. Uh, but was also able to take back glued foam. So foam pieces that we had glued together, which is normally they say we can't take it back. They were able to take that back and recycle it. Um, and then we basically scraped off the top layer of painted foam and sent back to them all the, the clean, unused, and as well as the used glued foam. And um, the exact numbers are escaping me, but I believe we uh, recycled or used 35 to 40 tons of foam off that six-episode production. Well, I think everybody uh, wants to hear that you guys are on the case and it uh, sounds like you are. So uh, thanks so much for sharing with that and for the great studio tour and everything else. Vijay Sudan, VP Social Impact, 21st Century Fox. Thank you. This was a great talk. Last week, Procter & Gamble became the latest company to make a significant zero-waste commitment, in this case, that it will eliminate all manufacturing waste from its global network, more than 100 production sites by 2020. Already, 56% of its global production sites have achieved this milestone, 
To learn more about the company's efforts to do that, I'm joined by Virginie Helias, Vice President of Global Sustainability at Procter & Gamble, based in Geneva, to discuss the sustainability commitment and some of the other uh, company's other commitments and its march towards 2020. Welcome, Virginie. Thank you, Joe. First of all, what led to make this announcement now? So we have um, a vision to um, uh, have zero waste to landfill manufacturing waste and consumer uh, waste uh, to have all our products, you know, made with uh, recycled material or uh, renewable material. And this is uh, one step toward that vision. Uh, so because we are uh, more than halfway there, uh, we believe that that was the right time to um, uh, to announce uh, that goal for 2020. And how much waste are we talking about? Have you given out figures about that? Yeah, so uh, we started actually this program in uh, back in 2007. Since we started the program, we've, we've already diverted 5 million metric tons of waste uh, since 2007. And our yearly waste streams equate 650,000 metric tons of waste. So that's what we have to divert from landfill every year for the next four years until 2020. So most of what goes into one of your manufacturing sites comes from an external supplier. Um, tell me how hard it's been to get suppliers to go along with this, or do they seem to be ready to engage in a zero-waste initiative? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've been uh, working with our supply uh, chain for a long time. We, uh, since 2010, we have a supplier a scorecard, you know, where... Uh, we uh, work with them to make sure that their um, objectives are in line with ours in terms of overall sustainability metrics and waste is, is one of them. So a lot of what you're doing is uh, seems to fit in with this growing trend to create a circular economy. Um, first of all, is that a term of art at Procter & Gamble? Is that something that you guys talk about or is it primarily zero waste? Yeah, we've we've been doing circular economy for longer than we've been using the term. But uh, uh, but you are right; we are starting to use it because that's exactly what it is. Uh, and I mean, when we uh, you know use our uh, uh, scrap of always for for steam company where we use the aspects of barrier to uh, to do car wash, uh, this is a way uh, to uh, uh, to keep those molecules longer in use. So this is actually circular economy. Uh, and and we uh, we are starting to use it more and more, not just for manufacturing, but also what we do with our consumer products after use. Right, because circular economy relates not just to waste streams, but to the front end, how you design, how you source materials, and, and that's part absolutely. of the conversation going on there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we when we use uh, uh, recycled uh, post-consumer recycled plastic in in our material, where we design for the assembly on on, on our product. Uh, that is circular economy, and, and that's how we start calling it internally. I was going to ask you about some of the big challenges you face, and I'm going to guess that that there's a sort of human factor to all of this, that getting people to change in some ways can be harder than getting the technologies to change. Is that the case? Uh, yes, you're right, actually. It's, uh, I mean, a lot of it is, is, uh, is change management. It's, it's making people understand that uh, there is actually a sweet spot between what is good for the environment, what is good for the business. Uh, but when people realize that, actually, they are very motivated and, and they want to do more. I mean, it started 
uh, a long time ago, and I was on this business at the time where we realized that um, uh, Ariel detergent in Europe uh, was best in low temperature. And so we developed a campaign around, you know, because it was great in low temperature, you can now uh, wash your clothes uh, in cold uh, and also uh, make saving on your energy bills. And so that was not only a great consumer idea, which uh, boosts the business, but we learned later that it was 85% of the carbon footprint of a detergent was the temperature of the washing machine. So you have the perfect intersection between uh, the business need uh, and, uh, and the environmental impact. And so when that happens, you know, people are very motivated to do more of it. So that's change at the consumer side, which is impressive. What about internally getting uh, uh, not just Procter & Gamble manufacturing employees, but your, all your different partners to participate in this? Is that a challenge? Well, more and more we realize that um, we can't do it alone. And, uh, and we've been doing it with, with other partners for, for a long time. You know, when we invented Connect and Develop, I mean, that was the the acknowledgement that um, um, you can go fast alone, but you can go much further, you know, when you are together. And so that's exactly the same here. And even more so, uh, I mean, like uh, important topic like recycling, for instance, we have to have the, uh, all the partners of the value chain, you know, together. Uh, so the, the recyclers, the, the, the local municipality, the government, and we are doing more and more uh, with those partners. And, and, you know, waste packaging, all this topic, water, stewardship, which are all the important areas that we are working on that are the most material for our business, absolutely require collaboration to drive significant uh, progress. So the commitment that Procter & Gamble made extends to 2020, but as you well know, a lot of companies are looking further out to 2025, 2030, and 2030 in particular aligns with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Do the SDGs factor into the internal and external goals that Procter & Gamble is setting? Yes, absolutely. So we have not yet uh, explicitly uh, made the link, but we are doing it internally. Um, you know, uh, all our focus areas are actually aligned both on environmental and on social, actually, are aligned with one of the SDGs. Um, and so we, uh, as, as we work on our further out goals, we will absolutely make that thing explicit because um, that is very, very consistent. So are there any of the SDGs that you see perhaps as low-hanging fruit for you? Well, the, I think no, number um, uh, 13 on, on uh, uh, sustainable uh, consumption and production is, is clearly what we're talking here. Uh, we're talking about production, but we have many um, examples on, on, on sustainable consumption. Um, obviously, <laughs> goal 17, that, that's the whole topic here. Uh, but the goal on climate, on uh, uh, you know, water, uh, uh, life is below water, life on land, I mean, all, all this, we have several examples where uh, it is totally part of our 2020 goals and our focus areas. Uh, and I'm just talking environmental, but, you know, on social, obviously, you have gender equality, which is a, a key for success area for us uh, and others. So, um, absolutely, we found it very, very helpful to have those uh, uh, goals to align with what we are doing internally. It sounds like an exciting time for sustainability at Procter & Gamble. It is a really exciting time, absolutely. 
and and you know I'm, my 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 background is is from the business. You know, I worked 23 years in in marketing, brand building, and innovation. Uh, and as in many companies, uh, the toughest has been to engage uh, the brand builders and the marketers because, as I said before, they didn't necessarily see saw that link between uh, business and and, uh, and sustainability. But now more and more uh, are seeing the link, and, and they want to contribute. And, and we have amazing stories that are in the making on, on our brand. So that's very exciting because I believe that it is really through our brand, because of the scale of our brand, that we can make the biggest difference here. Great. Well, we'll look forward to more amazing stories, but uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, Virginie Halayas, uh, Vice President, Global Sustainability at Procter & Gamble. Thanks so much for speaking to us. Thank you very much, Tom. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find the links to the organization, stories, events, things we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks, as always, to podcast director Soraya Melkonian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. And we'd love if you wanted to share the word about this podcast via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, hot air balloons, or any other means at your disposal. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.